I love this book, and you must too, since you've listened along this far. If you want to hear some of my other favorites, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed. There are no ads, and you can try it free for seven days. You'll find a link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's so lovely to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be continuing with Volume 3, Chapter 4 of Pride and Prejudice. But before that, let's take a moment here to relax and settle in. Get comfortable and take a big stretch. Feel the tension release from your muscles, allowing them to sink into the bed. Now, let's clear our minds. Take a deep breath in, imagining all your worries and concerns from today being sucked up into a big balloon. And exhale, watching that balloon drift away from you. You can attend to all of these thoughts tomorrow. But for now, there's nothing left to do but follow the sound of my voice as you fall into a restful sleep. Last time, while Elizabeth, her aunt and her uncle were having lunch at the local inn in Lambton, Mr. and Miss Darcy came to meet Elizabeth. Elizabeth found Miss Darcy extremely shy and reserved, and not at all the proud young woman that Mr. Wickham had described. Mr. Bingley was also there, eager to speak of Jane, but their conversation was cut short, and plans were made for Elizabeth and her family to join them for dinner at Pemberley the day after next. The following day, Elizabeth arrived home to find two letters from Jane. The first explaining their sister Lydia had vanished from Brighton and seemed to be eloping with Mr. Wickham. The second explained that Colonel Forster had tracked them, but only as far as London. Mr. Bennet had travelled to town to find them, but Jane was hoping for the assistance of Uncle Gardner as soon as possible. Just as Elizabeth was setting off to find her uncle, Mr. Darcy entered the room. And that is where we pick back up tonight, with Darcy having convinced Elizabeth to send a servant while she calmed down, and Elizabeth explaining the desperate situation to one who could understand the predicament more than most.
chapter 4 continued. On the servants leaving the room to fetch her aunt and uncle, Elizabeth sat down, unable to support herself. And as she was looking so miserably ill, it was impossible for Darcy to leave her or to refrain from saying in a tone of gentleness and commiseration, Let me call your maid. Is there nothing you could take to give yourself present relief? A glass of wine. Shall I get you one? You are very ill. No, I thank you, she replied, endeavoring to recover herself. There is nothing the matter with me. I'm quite well. I am only distressed by some dreadful news which I have just received from Longbourn. She burst into tears as she alluded to it, and for a few minutes could not speak another word. Darcy, in wretched suspense, could only say something indistinctly of his concern and observe in compassionate silence. At length, she spoke again. I have just had a letter from Jane with such dreadful news, Elizabeth said. It cannot be concealed from anyone. My youngest sister has left all her friends, has eloped, has thrown herself into the power of Mr. Wickham. They are gone off together from Brighton. You know him too well to doubt the rest. She has no money, no connections, nothing that can tempt him. She is lost forever. Darcy was fixed in astonishment. When I consider, she added in a yet more agitated voice, that I might have prevented it. I, who knew what he was, had I but explained some part of it only, some part of what I learned to my own family. Had his character been known, this could not have happened. But it is all too late now. I'm grieved indeed, said Darcy. Grieved. Shocked. But is it certain? Absolutely certain. Oh yes, said Elizabeth. They left Brighton together on Sunday night and were traced almost to London, but not beyond. They are certainly not gone to Scotland. And what has been done? What has been attempted to recover her? Asked Darcy. My father is gone to London, and Jane has written to beg my uncle's immediate assistance, Elizabeth replied, and we shall be off, I hope, in half an hour. But nothing can be done. I know very well that nothing can be done. How is such a man to be worked on? How are they even discovered? I have not the smallest hope. It is every way horrible. Darcy shook his head in silent acquiescence. When my eyes 
were opened to his real character, said Elizabeth. How had I known what I ought, what I dared to do? But I knew not. I was afraid of doing too much. Wretched, wretched mistake. Darcy made no answer. He seemed scarcely to hear her and was walking up and down the room in earnest meditation. His brow contracted, his air gloomy. Elizabeth soon observed and instantly understood it. Her power was sinking. Everything must sink under such a proof of family weakness, such an assurance of the deepest disgrace. She could neither wonder nor condemn, but the belief of his self-conquest brought nothing consolatory to her bosom, offered no palliation of her distress. It was, on the contrary, exactly calculated to make her understand her own wishes. And never had she so honestly felt that she could have loved him as now, when all love must be vain. But self, though it would intrude, could not engross her. Lydia, the humiliation, the misery she was bringing on them all, soon swallowed up every private care. And covering her face with her handkerchief, Elizabeth was soon lost to everything else. And, after a pause of several minutes, was only recalled to a sense of her situation by the voice of her companion, who, in a manner which, though it spoke compassion, spoke likewise restraint, said, I'm afraid you have long been desiring my absence, nor have I anything to plead in excuse of my stay but real, though unavailing, concern. Would to heaven that anything could be either said or done on my part that might offer consolation to such distress. But I will not torment you with vain wishes, which may seem purposely to ask for your thanks. This unfortunate affair will, I fear, prevent my sisters having the pleasure of seeing you at Pemberley today. Oh, yes, said Elizabeth. Be so kind as to apologize for us to Miss Darcy. Say that urgent business calls us home immediately. Conceal the unhappy truth as long as it is possible. I know it cannot be long. He readily assured her of his secrecy, again expressed his sorrow for her distress, wished it a happier conclusion than there was at present reason to hope, and leaving his compliments for her relations with only one serious parting look went away. As he left the room, Elizabeth felt how improbable it was that they should ever see each other again on such terms of cordiality as had marked their several meetings in Derbyshire. 
and as she threw a retrospective glance over the whole of their acquaintance, so full of contradictions and varieties, sighed at the perverseness of those feelings, which would now have promoted its continuance and would formerly have rejoiced in its termination. If gratitude and esteem are good foundations of affection, Elizabeth's change of sentiment will be neither improbable nor faulty. But if otherwise, if the regard springing from such sources is unreasonable or unnatural in comparison of what is so often described as arising on a first interview with its object, and even before two words have been exchanged, Nothing can be said in her defense, except that she had given somewhat of a trial to the latter method in her partiality for Wickham, and that its ill success might perhaps authorize her to seek the other, less interesting mode of attachment. Be that as it may, she saw him go with regret and in this early example of what Lydia's infamy must produce, she found additional anguish as she reflected on that wretched business. Never since reading Jane's second letter had she entertained a hope of Wickham's meaning to marry her. No one but Jane, she thought, could flatter herself with such an expectation. Surprise! was the least of her feelings on this development. While the contents of the first letter remained on her mind, she was all surprise, all astonishment that Wickham should marry a girl whom it was impossible he could marry for money, and how Lydia could have ever attached him had appeared incomprehensible. But now, it was all too natural. For such an attachment as this, she might have sufficient charms. And though she did not suppose Lydia to be deliberately engaging in an elopement without the intention of marriage, she had no difficulty in believing that neither her virtue nor her understanding would preserve her from falling an easy prey. She had never perceived, while the regiment was in Hertfordshire, that Lydia had any partiality for him. But she was convinced that Lydia had wanted only encouragement to attach herself to anybody. Sometimes one officer, sometimes another, had been her favorite, as their attentions raised them in her opinion. Her affections had been continually fluctuating, but never without an object. The mischief of neglect and mistaken indulgence towards such a girl, oh, how acutely did she now feel it. She was wild to be at home, to hear, to see, to be upon the spot, to share with Jane the cares that must now fall wholly upon her in a family so deranged, a father absent, 
a mother incapable of exertion and requiring constant attendance. And though almost persuaded that nothing could be done for Lydia, her uncle's interference seemed of the utmost importance, and till he entered the room, the misery of her impatience was severe. Mr. and Mrs. Gardner had hurried back in alarm, supposing by the servant's account that their niece was taken suddenly ill. But satisfying them instantly on that head, she eagerly communicated the cause of their summons, reading the two letters aloud and dwelling on the postscript of the last with trembling energy. Though Lydia had never been a favorite with them, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner could not but be deeply affected. Not Lydia only, but all were concerned in it, and after the first exclamations of surprise and horror, Mr. Gardner readily promised every assistance in his power. Elizabeth, though expecting no less, thanked him with tears of gratitude. And all three, being actuated by one spirit, everything relating to their journey was speedily settled. They were to be off as soon as possible. But what is to be done about Pemberley? said Mrs. Gardner. John told us Mr. Darcy was here when you sent for us. Was it so? Yes, and I told him we should not be able to keep our engagement, said Elizabeth. That is all settled. That is all settled, repeated the other as she ran into her room to prepare. And are they upon such terms as for her to disclose the real truth? Oh, that I knew how it was. But wishes were in vain or at best, could serve only to amuse her in the hurry and confusion of the following hour. Had Elizabeth been at leisure to be idle, she would have remained certain that all employment was impossible to one so wretched as herself. But she had her share of business as well as her aunt. And amongst the rest, there were notes to be written to all their friends in Lambton with false excuses for their sudden departure. An hour, however, saw the whole completed. And Mr. Gardner, meanwhile having settled his account at the inn, nothing remained to be done but to go. And Elizabeth, after all the misery of the morning, found herself, in a shorter space of time than she could have supposed, seated in the carriage and on the road to Longbourn. Chapter 5 I have been thinking it over again, Elizabeth, said her uncle as they drove from the town, and really, upon serious consideration, I am much more inclined than I was to judge 
as your eldest sister does of the matter. It appears to me so very unlikely that any young man should form such a design against a girl who is by no means unprotected or friendless, and who is actually staying in his colonel's family, that I am strongly inclined to hope the best. Could he expect that her friends would not step forward? Could he expect to be noticed again by the regiment after such an affront to Colonel Forster? His temptation is not adequate to the risk. Do you really think so? said Elizabeth, brightening up for a moment. Upon my word, said Mrs. Gardner, I begin to be of your uncle's opinion. It is really too great a violation of decency, honor, and interest for him to be guilty of it. I cannot think so very ill of Wickham. Can you yourself, Lizzie, so wholly give him up as to believe him capable of it? Not perhaps of neglecting his own interest, said Elizabeth, but of every other neglect I can believe him capable, if indeed it should be so. But I dare not hope it. Why should they not go on to Scotland if that had been the case? In the first place, replied Mr. Gardner, there is no absolute proof that they are not gone to Scotland. Oh, but their removing from the carriage into a hackney coach is such a presumption, said Elizabeth. And besides, no traces of them were to be found on the Barnet Road. Well then, supposing them to be in London, Mr. Gardiner replied, they may be there, though for the purpose of concealment, for no more exceptional purpose. It is not likely that money should be very abundant on either side, and it might strike them that they could be more economically, though less expeditiously, married in London than in Scotland. But why all this secrecy? said Elizabeth. Why any fear of detection? Why must their marriage be private? Oh no. No, this is not likely. His most particular friend, you see, by Jane's account, was persuaded of his never intending to marry her. Wickham will never marry a woman without some money. He cannot afford it. And what claims has Lydia? What attractions has she beyond youth, health, and good humor that could make him, for her sake, forego every chance of benefiting himself by marrying well. As to what restraint the apprehension of disgrace in the regiment might throw on a dishonorable elopement with her, I am not able to judge, for I know nothing of the effects that such a step might produce. But as to your other objection, I'm afraid it will hardly hold good. 
Lydia has no brothers to step forward, and he might imagine from my father's behavior, from his indolence, and the little attention he has ever seemed to give what was going forward in his family, that he would do as little and think as little about it as any father could do in such a matter. But can you think that Lydia is so lost to everything but love of him as to consent to live with him on any other terms than marriage? asked Mr. Gardiner. It does seem, and it is most shocking indeed, replied Elizabeth with tears in her eyes, that a sister's sense of decency and virtue in such a point should admit of doubt. But really, I know not what to say. Perhaps I am not doing her justice. But she is very young. She has never been taught to think on serious subjects. And for the last half year, nay, for a twelve-month, she has been given up to nothing but amusement and vanity. She has been allowed to dispose of her time in the most idle and frivolous manner, and to adopt any opinions that came in her way. Since the regiment was first quartered in Meryton, nothing but love, flirtation, and officers have been in her head. She has been doing everything in her power by thinking and talking on the subject to give greater, what shall I call it, susceptibility to her feelings, which are naturally lively enough. And we all know that Wickham has every charm of person and address that can captivate a woman. But you see that Jane, said her aunt, does not think so ill of Wickham as to believe him capable of the attempt. Of whom does Jane ever think ill? Elizabeth returned. And who is there? whatever might be their former conduct, that she would believe capable of such an attempt till it were proved against them. But Jane knows as well as I do what Wickham really is. We both know that he has been profligate in every sense of the word, that he has neither integrity nor honor, that, that he is as false and deceitful as he is insinuating. And do you really know all this? said Mrs. Gardiner, whose curiosity as to the mode of her intelligence was all alive. I do indeed, replied Elizabeth, blushing. I told you the other day of his infamous behavior to Mr. Darcy, and you yourself when last at Longbourn heard in what manner he spoke of the man who had behaved with such forbearance and liberality towards him. And there are other circumstances which I am not at liberty, which it is not worthwhile to relate. But his lies about the whole Pemberley family are endless. 
From what he said of Miss Darcy, I was thoroughly prepared to see a proud, reserved, disagreeable girl. Yet he knew to the contrary himself. He must know that she was as amiable and unpretending as we have found her. But does Lydia know nothing of this? asked Mrs. Gardner. Can she be ignorant of what you and Jane seem so well to understand? Oh yes, said Elizabeth. That, that is the worst of all. Till I was in Kent and saw so much of both Mr. Darcy and his relation, Colonel Fitzwilliam, I was ignorant of the truth myself. And when I returned home, the officers were to leave Meryton in a week or fortnight's time. As that was the case, neither Jane, to whom I related the whole, nor I thought it necessary to make our knowledge public. For what use could it apparently be to anyone that the good opinion which all the neighborhood have of him should then be overthrown? And even when it was settled that Lydia should go with Mrs. Forster, the necessity of opening her eyes to his character never occurred to me. That she could be in any danger from the deception never entered my head. That such a consequence as this should ensue, you may easily believe, was far enough from my thoughts. When they all removed to Brighton, therefore, you had no reason, I suppose, to believe them fond of each other, said Mrs. Gardner. Not the slightest, Elizabeth replied. I can remember no symptom of affection on either side, and had anything of the kind been perceptible, you must be aware that ours is not a family on which it could be thrown away. When he first entered the corps, she was ready enough to admire him, but so we all were. Every girl in or near Meryton was out of her senses about him for the first two months. But he never distinguished her by any particular attention. And consequently, after a moderate period of extravagant and wild admiration, her fancy for him gave way. And others of the regiment, who treated her with more distinction, again became her favorites. It may be easily believed that however little of novelty could be added to their fears, hopes, and conjectures on this interesting subject by its repeated discussion, no other could detain them from it long during the whole of the journey. From Elizabeth's thoughts, it was never absent, fixed there by the keenest of all anguish and self-reproach, she could find no interval of ease or forgetfulness. They traveled as expeditiously as possible, and sleeping one night on the road, reached Longbourn by dinner time the next day. 
it was a comfort to Elizabeth to consider that Jane could not have been wearied by long expectations. The little gardeners, attracted by the sight of the carriage, were standing on the steps of the house as they entered the paddock, and when the carriage drove up to the door, the joyful surprise that lighted up their faces and displayed itself over their whole bodies in a variety of capers and frisks was the first pleasing earnest of their welcome. Elizabeth jumped out and after giving each of them a hasty kiss, hurried into the vestibule where Jane, who came running downstairs from their mother's apartment, immediately met her. Elizabeth as affectionately embraced her, while tears filled the eyes of both, lost not a moment in asking whether anything had been heard of the fugitives. Not yet, replied Jane, but now that our dear uncle is come, I hope everything will be well. Is our father in town? asked Elizabeth. Yes, said Jane. He went on Tuesday as I wrote you word. And have you heard from him often? Elizabeth asked. We have heard only once, Jane replied. He wrote me a few lines on Wednesday to say that he had arrived in safety and to give me his directions, which I particularly begged him to do. He merely added that he should not write again till he had something of importance to mention. And our mother? How is she? Asked Elizabeth. How are you all? Our mother is tolerably well, I trust, though her spirits are greatly shaken, said Jane. She's upstairs and will have great satisfaction in seeing you all. She does not yet leave her dressing room. Mary and Kitty, thank heaven, are quite well. But you, how are you? said Elizabeth. You look pale. How much you must have gone through. Her sister, however, assured her of being perfectly well, and their conversation, which had been passing while Mr. and Mrs. Gardner were engaged with their children, was now put an end to by the approach of the whole party. Jane ran to her uncle and aunt and welcomed and thanked them both with alternate smiles and tears. When they were all in the drawing room, the questions which Elizabeth had already asked were, of course, repeated by the others and they soon found that Jane had no intelligence to give. The sanguine hope of good, however, which the benevolence of her heart suggested, had not yet deserted her. She still expected that it would all end well, and that every morning would bring some letter, either from Lydia or their father, to explain their proceedings and perhaps announce the marriage. 
Mrs. Bennet, to whose apartment they all repaired after a few minutes' conversation together, received them exactly as might be expected, with tears and lamentations of regret, invectives against the villainous conduct of Wickham, and complaints of her own sufferings and ill usage, blaming everybody but the person whose ill-judging indulgence the errors of her daughter must be principally owing. If I had been able, said she, to carry my point of going to Brighton with all my family, this would not have happened. But poor dear Lydia had nobody to take care of her. Why did the Forsters ever let her go out of their sight? I am sure there was some great neglect or other on their side, for she is not the kind of girl to do such a thing if she had been well looked after. I always thought they were very unfit to have the charge of her, but I was overruled, as I always am. Poor dear child. And now, here's Mr. Bennet gone away, and I know he will fight Wickham wherever he meets him, and then he will be killed. And what is to become of us all? The Collinses will turn us out before he is cold in his grave. And if you are not kind to us, brother, I do not know what we shall do. They all exclaimed against such terrific ideas, and Mr. Gardiner, after general assurances of his affection for her and all her family, told her that he meant to be in London the very next day and would assist Mr. Bennet in every endeavour for recovering Lydia. Do not give way to useless alarm, added he. Though it is right to be prepared for the worst, there is no occasion to look on it as certain. It is not quite a week since they left Brighton. In a few days more, we may gain some news of them, and till we know that they are not married and have no design of marrying, do not let us give the matter over as lost. As soon as I get to town, I shall go to my brother and make him come home with me to Gracechurch Street, and then we may consult together as to what is to be done. Oh, my dear brother, replied Mrs. Bennet, that is exactly what I could most wish for, and now do, when you get to town, find them out, wherever they may be. And if they are not married already, make them marry. And as for wedding clothes, do not let them wait for that, but tell Lydia she shall have as much money as she chooses to buy them, after they are married. And above all things, keep Mr. Bennet from fighting. Tell him what a dreadful state I am in, that I am frightened out of my wits and have such tremblings, such flutterings all over me, 
such spasms in my side, and pains in my head, and such beatings at heart, that I can get no rest by night or day. And tell my dear Lydia not to give any directions about her clothes till she has seen me, for she does not know which are the best warehouses. Oh, brother, how kind you are. I know you will contrive it all. But Mr. Gardiner, though he assured her again of his earnest endeavours in the cause, could not avoid recommending moderation to her, as well in her hopes as her fears. And after talking with her in this manner till dinner was on the table, they left her to vent all her feelings on the housekeeper, who attended in the absence of her daughters. Though her brother and sister were persuaded that there was no real occasion for such seclusion from the family, they did not attempt to oppose it, for they knew that she had not prudence enough to hold her tongue before the servants while they waited at the table, and judged it better that one only of the household, and the one whom they could most trust, should comprehend all her fears and solicitude on the subject. In the dining room, they were soon joined by Mary and Kitty, who had been too busily engaged in their separate apartments to make their appearance before. One came from her books, and the other from her toilette. The faces of both, however, were tolerably calm, and no change was visible in either, except that the loss of her favorite sister, or the anger which she had herself incurred in the business, had given something more of fretfulness than usual to the accents of Kitty. As for Mary, she was mistress enough of herself to whisper to Elizabeth, with countenance of grave reflection, soon after they were seated at the table. This is a most unfortunate affair, and will probably be much talked of, but we must stem the tide of malice and pour into the wounded bosoms of each other the balm of sisterly consolation. Then, Perceiving in Elizabeth no inclination of replying, she added, Unhappy as the event must be for Lydia, we may draw from it this useful lesson, that loss of virtue in a female is irretrievable, that one false step involves her in endless ruin, that her reputation is no less brittle than it is beautiful, and that she cannot be too much guarded in her behavior towards the undeserving of the other sex. Elizabeth lifted up her eyes in amazement, but was too much oppressed to make any reply. Mary, however, continued to console herself with such kind of moral extractions 
from the evil before them. In the afternoon, the two elder Miss Bennets were able to be for half an hour by themselves, and Elizabeth instantly availed herself of the opportunity of making many inquiries, which Jane was equally eager to satisfy. After joining in general lamentations over the dreadful sequel of this event, which Elizabeth considered as all but certain, and Jane could not assert to be wholly impossible, the former continued the subject by saying, But tell me all and everything about it, which I have not already had. Give me further particulars. What did Colonel Forster say? Had they no apprehension of anything before the elopement took place? They must have seen them together forever. Colonel Forster did own that he had often suspected some partiality, especially on Lydia's side, but nothing to give him any alarm, said Jane. I'm so grieved for him. His behavior was attentive and kind to the utmost. He was coming to us in order to assure us of his concern before he had any idea of their not being gone to Scotland. When that apprehension first got abroad, it hastened his journey. And was Danny convinced that Wickham would not marry? Asked Elizabeth. Did he know of their intending to go off? Had Colonel Forster seen Denny himself? Yes, but when questioned by him, Denny denied knowing anything of their plan and would not give his real opinion about it, said Jane. He did not repeat his persuasion of their not marrying, and from that I'm inclined to hope he might have been misunderstood before. And till Colonel Forster came himself, not one of you entertained a doubt, I suppose, of their being really married? Elizabeth asked. How is it possible that such an idea should enter our brains? Said Jane. I felt a little uneasy, a little fearful, of my sister's happiness with him in marriage, because I knew that his conduct had not always been quite right. Our father and mother knew nothing of that. They only felt how imprudent a match must be. Kitty then owned, with very natural triumph, on knowing more than the rest of us, that in Lydia's last letter she had prepared her for such a step. She had known, it seems, of their being in love with each other many weeks. But not before they went to Brighton, asked Elizabeth. No, I believe not, Jane replied. And did Colonel Forster appear to think ill of Wickham himself? Elizabeth continued. Does he know his real character? I must confess that he did not speak so well of Wickham as he formerly did, Jane returned. He believed him to be imprudent and extravagant, 
and since this sad affair has taken place, it is said that he left Meryton greatly in debt, but I hope this may be false. Oh, Jane, had we been less secret, had we told what we knew of him, this could not have happened, Elizabeth said. Perhaps it would have been better, replied her sister. But to expose the former faults of any person without knowing what their present feelings were seemed unjustifiable. We acted with the best intentions. Could Colonel Forster repeat the particulars of Lydia's note to his wife? Asked Elizabeth. He brought it with him for us to see, Jane answered. Jane then took it from her pocketbook and gave it to Elizabeth. These were the contents. My dear Harriet, you will laugh when you know where I am gone, and I cannot help laughing myself at your surprise tomorrow morning as soon as I am missed. I am going to Gretna Green, and if you cannot guess with who, I shall think you a fool. For there is but one man in the world I love, and he is an angel. I should never be happy without him, so think it no harm to be off. You need not send them word at Longbourn of my going if you do not like it, for it will make the surprise the greater when I write to them and sign my name, Lydia Wickham. What a good joke it will be. I can hardly write for my laughing. Pray, make my excuses to Pratt for not keeping my engagement and dancing with him tonight. Tell him I hope he will excuse me when he knows all, and tell him I will dance with him at the next ball we meet with great pleasure. I shall send for my clothes when I get to Longbourn but I wish you would tell Sally to mend a great slit in my worked muslin gown before they are packed up. Goodbye. Give my love to Colonel Forster. I hope you will drink to our good journey. Your affectionate friend, Lydia Bennett.